going to open with a word of prayer, and then we'll dig in looking at this man who's such an enigma, Samson. Him and Solomon both. Sometimes I just shake my head. But you know what it does? It gives me uh, a blessing to know that if God can use uh, flawed men like Samson, he can use flawed men like me. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We praise you. We ask now as we go to your word that your Holy Spirit would be our teacher. Give us ears to hear what your spirit would say to us tonight. Lord, I thank you for the fact that in your word, you don't hide the frailties of your heroes. Lord, we know that's because we're all sinners saved by grace. And it's so important for all of us to understand, to to see, Lord, that Samson ends up in the hall of faith, which is amazing to us. Because his life for the first 95% of it is a mess. But in the end, he turns to you. And Lord, we ask tonight as we take a look at this man in scripture, you administer to every heart that is here. I thank you for everyone who's here, none by chance, all by divine appointment. We pray for those watching on live stream. Pray for our brother Tom down in Arizona. May you bless him, Lord. Be with us, we pray tonight. In Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. When we hear the name Samson, people usually think of two things, that he's strong and Delilah. And we're not really going to look at either one of those tonight because they're in later chapters. But the chapter that I want to look at tonight is when we're introduced to Samson. We're going to see his background, the unique calling that God has placed upon his life. The sad part is that we don't think as much about the incredible calling God had upon his life. We think about his failures. We think about his strength, but we don't think about the incredible calling God had upon his life. Do you know that Jesus Christ came to his parents and told them that he was going to be born and prepared his mother by telling her that he was to have the Nazarite vow and that from that day forward, she was not to even eat grapes or anything to do with with alcohol because of the fact that her son was going to be born of the Nazarite vow. She was a barren woman. Jesus showed up. Whenever you see the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament, it's Jesus Christ. And Jesus came and spoke to her about a son being born. Later on in that chapter, you see that uh, her husband also is introduced to the Lord. And then the Lord stands before them and they're blown away that he ascends to heaven in front of them. And they talk about the fact that they were able to see God. They saw the glory of God. So now they have their son. And just as a quick reminder in Judges, Judges has a seven times that goes through this cycle over 400 years. Here's what happens. The children of Israel are, are walking with God, and then their judge passes away. Their leader passes away. Then they rebel, become like the world around them. God brings righteous judgment. They're put into bondage. They cry out for a leader. God brings them another judge. He restores them unto himself. He delivers them out of bondage. And then when the leader dies, they do it all over again. And when we come to tonight's text, it's been 40 years they've been in bondage to the Philistines. And during those 40 years, they have been crying out. And now, again, Samson's parents were told before he was born that he's going to be the next deliverer. He is going to be the judge that God is going to use. So he was going to be called to deliver Israel out of the hands of the Philistines, to take the Nazarite vow. We'll talk about that in a minute. He was blessed of God, the Holy Spirit moving upon him, it tells us at the end of chapter 13. And though listed in God's hall of faith, what he is remembered most for is his moral failure. 
You know, there's nothing new under the sun. I'll be sharing this with the pastors, but so it may not be totally applicable to all of us, but we all know people who are uniquely gifted by God, being used mightily to reach a lost and a dying world, proclaiming the truth of God's word with boldness, and from all outward appearances, we're living lives of godly character. Then sadly, when the truth comes out, we find out they've been living lives of compromise, hypocrisy, and rebellion. They've allowed their false, their fleshly desires to take hold of their lives. They've then disqualified themselves from doing the very thing that Almighty God has called them to do. How many of you know someone in ministry that, did, that falls into that category? When they were disqualified, they were being used mightily by God, and then sadly we see them fall. I think there's few things more tragic than to be disqualified from the very thing God called you to do. God says, this is what I'm calling you to do. This is what I've gifted you to do. This is what I'm blessing you to be allowed to do. And then being disqualified because of your fleshly choices. On more than one occasion at the senior pastor's conference down at the Bible college, Pastor Chuck got up and said this. And again, I remember it so well. He warned everyone there. In one case, there was over 2,000 senior pastors. He said, I want you to stop, and I want you to look around the room at the other pastors in the room. And he said, and here's the reality. Some of them won't be here next year because in the next 12 months, they'll do something that disqualifies them for ministry. That's heavy. He also told us and exhorted us the four things that cause people to fall most often. He said, touch not the wine, touch not the women, touch not the money, touch not the glory. Amen. And you know what? We need to be reminded, pastors need to be reminded, but we all need to be reminded, again, that there's only one celebrity in Christianity, and his name is Jesus Christ, amen? And the enemy wants nothing more than to see you fall. If he can't bring a temptation that you will respond to, he will do everything in his power to distract you, to get you to take your eyes off of what you're called to do and get caught up in something else that keeps you from what the Lord really desires to do in you and through you. We've got pastors today that 90% of what they talk about is politics and 10% Jesus. That's losing sight of what you're called to do. Amen? We have pastors today that are worried about social justice and everything else under the sun. That's not what we're called to do. We're called to preach the whole counsel of God. Amen? We're called to fulfill the Great Commission. We're called to make disciples. And sadly, if the enemy can win, he will draw us away from what we are called to do. Again, to preach the word, to love the people, to take our focus off the Lord. If he can get us to start thinking more highly of ourselves than we ought to, to get us to start taking credit for what the Lord is doing in us and through us, and in some cases becoming so arrogant that we think God's words and his commands don't apply to us. This can happen with pastors all the time. What happens is they start to think more highly of themselves than they ought to. They start to listen to other people telling them how amazing they are, and the reality is that God uses the foolish things to confound the wise, so that means we're foolish things if he's using us. Amen? And the focus needs not to be on who we are, but who he is. He wants to get us to take credit for what the Lord is doing. And you'll see people do that. They'll start, their chest will puff up a little bit because the ministry is growing and somehow they'll want to take some of the credit. And again, the reality is that God moves mildly in spite of us, not because of us. In some cases, becoming, again, so arrogant that they think God's word doesn't apply to them. Solomon, right, the wisest man who ever lived, had a thousand women. What in the world happened? What happened was he thought the word of God didn't apply to him. 
And before you knew it, there was false idols being worshipped, and we saw the, the consequences that came. We're going to see that tonight in Samson. I don't know the motive in his heart. The Bible doesn't tell us, but we do know that sadly, here's this man, uniquely gifted, called of God, the hand of God upon him, the spirit of God within him, godly parents leading and, and, and raising him, and yet we're going to see that it, tragically he misses out on what God had for him. When we cease to be humble, broken, and desperate, we are becoming more like Satan, whose pride and arrogance got him thrown out of heaven. That'll probably go over really well next Wednesday. <laughs> While God in his grace chooses to use us, he doesn't need us. He doesn't need us, we need him. Amen? And when we cease to understand that, when we start thinking that God is so blessed that we're on his team, and we would never say that out loud, but if we listen to the people around us sometimes who praise us so much, we start to believe what we're hearing. And when people praise you, you need to stop them because all the praise, the glory, and honor belongs to the Lord and not to man. While God is, again, chooses to use us, he doesn't need us. And again, he uses the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. Only one celebrity in Christianity, and his name is Jesus Christ. So as we've said, it's been a 400-year period in Judges, and again, this man this morning, he is the last of those Judges. He's going to be the last one, and they've been waiting for him for 40 years. They've been in bondage to the Philistines for 40 years, and they're all hoping, who's going to come, Lord? When are you going to send somebody to get our eyes back on the Lord, to bring restoration amongst the people? Who's it going to be, and when is that person going to come? We'll read chapter 13 later, but you'll see in chapter 13, again, the Holy Spirit shows up, ministers to a barren woman. The angel of the Lord shows up. Jesus tells her, you're going to have a child. Not only are you going to have a child, he is going to be the judge over Israel. The Holy Spirit is going to be upon him. He is going to be used mightily. And you need to take the Nazarite vow. So I'm going to give you three things about the Nazarite vow because they're significant. Then we'll get into the text. The word Nazar means to separate. So separated from the world and unto the Lord. And here's three ways he was to be separated that apply to us. So first of all, I want to say this. It's a vow. A vow is not I'll try my best and I hope it works out. A vow is a commitment to Almighty God. It's not just a promise, but in Samson's case, this was an unbreakable bond for a lifetime, and the specifics, again, of which are in Numbers chapter 6. So three things. First of all, they're to drink no alcohol. He even told his mother not to eat grapes, nothing from the vineyard. Now, why would a, a man of God need to stay away from alcohol? Well, the Bible tells us about alcohol, that wine is a mocker, strong drink is a brawler, and whoever is led astray by it is not wise. It also says in Proverbs, it is not for kings to drink wine, nor principles to drink strong drink. Princes, excuse me. Ephesians, it says, and do not be drunk with wine, which is dissipation, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. It says in 1 Timothy 3 of pastors, they are not given to wine. Here's what alcohol does. I have friends who used to call it liquid courage. I call it liquid stupidity. Because I've never heard anybody drink a bunch of alcohol and make a bunch of really great decisions. I drank a bunch of alcohol last night, and that was a train wreck, and I'm trying to recover from it. Amen? It's more likely. And so he's saying someone who's set apart unto the Lord, and I'm not being legalistic about this. It's between you and the Lord. But what he does say of Samson, 
is that he is not to ever have anything to do, not only with alcohol, but vineyards, grapes, raisins, anything to do with it because he knew there was compromise. And again, we do not want to dumb down the Holy Spirit. Amen? See, when you drink alcohol, you, you dumb down the Holy Spirit. Again, they call it liquid courage, but again, you're, it's, what it's doing is it's liquid raising up your fleshly desires and quieting the Holy Spirit. The Bible tells us, again, be not drunk with wine, be filled with the Holy Spirit. We don't need uh, spirits, alcohol. We have the Spirit, amen? And as we walk in the Spirit. And so, again, it lowers inhibitions, and not by chance, just after dealing uh, with adultery previously, he's talking about alcohol and why it can be a problem. So not only were they not to drink alcohol, but he was to let his hair grow long. And this might seem weird. Why would he have his hair grow long? Well, in to me, it's very clear what it was a picture of is to make him recognizable to everybody that he had made this vow to God. We have other people in scripture that had the vow. We certainly was John the Baptist, also potentially uh, could have been uh, Samuel as well. And so what they did is when they saw their long hair, they would know that that person has made a vow to be set apart unto the Lord. And you know what? We as believers, it's not long hair, but we should live in such a way that when people see us, they recognize that something's different about us and they want to know what it is. Again, it was a public vow that became easily identifiable to all who saw him when he allowed his hair to grow long. And then thirdly, along with separated from wine, clear mind focused on God, long hair, be identifiable, let your light so shine before men that they see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. They were also be separated from the dead. They were not to touch any dead bodies. They were not allowed to even go to a funeral. So if they did, they would be defiled. And so these three things were something that no doubt when he was a young child that his parents poured into him. Samson, God has a calling upon your life. You're going to be the judge of all Israel. God is going to use you to deliver us from the bondage of the Philistines. And these are three things you must stay away from. No wine, nothing to do with the vineyard or alcohol. You're gonna, we're gonna, never going to cut your hair. We're going to let it grow long so everybody who sees you will know that you've made this vow. And then thirdly, you're to touch no dead thing. If you see a dead animal, walk away from it. Have nothing to do with it. So here's this man. He's taken this Nazarite vow. And you know the dead bodies thing, to me, has an application because the Bible tells us that those of us who are born again are new creations in Christ. We were once dead in our trespasses and sins, and now we're alive in Christ. And for us, we're to minister to the world, but have no fellowship with it. And everybody who doesn't know God is spiritually dead. And so we see here that if you hang around with the dead, it's going to defile you. We're to minister to the world, but have no fellowship with it. So, to help Samson walk faithfully, not only did he have the Nazarite vow, but he had godly parents. He had godly parents who had seen Jesus face to face, had seen his glory ascend in the flame of the altar. They fell on their faces before God. The Bible says that the Lord blessed Samson. The spirit of the Lord began to move upon him, and his name Samson means bright or sunny. And he was going to be the bright light coming, used by God to pierce the darkness. I find it interesting that at the end of his life, when Samson finally does cry out to God and is used by him to, to bring the, the walls down, it's when he's blind and he's in darkness himself. 
But as we come to tonight's text, it seems he has all going for himself to be the next great judge, the next great deliverer of Israel, uniquely called by God, a child of unbelievable promise, divinely equipped by God, again, godly parents, God's word and his Nazarite vow to clearly direct him, the Holy Spirit moving upon him. He was a champion of undeniable power, but at the same time, we're going to see he's a man of unreliable character. I find it interesting when you look at the qualifications for a pastor in 1 Timothy 3, there's 15 qualifications for a pastor. 14 speak of character, only one speaks of gifting. And too often we, foc- we focus on the giftedness of a man when we need to focus more on the character. So if you have your outline, grab it. And I titled the message, Compromise the Enemy of calling. Samson is an object lesson for all of us that even though a man or a woman may be uniquely called, divinely gifted, spiritually empowered, it can all be fruitless if there is compromise and a lack of godly character. We are the ones missing out as God's will will be done with us or without us. And there are, more, there are few things sadder than seeing somebody called by God and gifted by God whose fleshly desires and their lack of character has disqualified them from the very thing God has called them to do. So compromise the enemy of calling. Three areas of compromise in Samson's life we're going to learn from. Number one, being led by the flesh, not by the spirit. Is it a daily battle between the spirit and the flesh in your life? What's the answer? Your, your flesh wants you, tries to draw you away. You know, if we walk in the spirit, we will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. And we need to put the flesh to death daily. Number two, walking in direct disobedience to the word of God. So compromise comes when we're led by the flesh and when we disobey God's word. Obedience is a choice and it's the highest form of worship. And then thirdly, taking his vow of separation too lightly. And this is an epidemic in Christian churches today. We, it's sometimes it's hard to recognize the difference between the world and the church because we have compromised so much to look like the church, be entertained by the world, act like the world, behave like the world, strive like the world, have the same priorities of the world. And you know what? As believers, we should be nothing like the world. Amen? So Samson called of God. Remember that reputation is who you are when everyone is watching and character is who you are when no one is watching. Let's begin there looking at compromise the enemy of calling, being led by the flesh, not by the spirit. So all the preparation has taken place. Samson is now an adult man. It's finally time for Samson to come on the scene. The Philistines have had them in bondage for 40 years. The judge is finally coming. It says in the last verse of chapter 13, and the spirit of the Lord began to move upon him at Manaeth. Dan between Zora and Ethel. So the Holy Spirit is moving upon him. Let's see what incredible words. Here we're going to see the first words coming out of his mouth in these first two verses. What are we going to hear from this mighty man of God? Look what it says in verse one and two. Now Samson went down. This defines him in four words. Samson went down. He went down physically. He's going to go down into the land of the Philistines. 
but he's going to go down spiritually, it says there, to Timnah. Now, Timnah is a city located four miles within Philistine territory, and Samson goes into the enemy camp. Now, remember, he was called to go and defeat the Philistines, but instead, he's going to go down into the land of the Philistines, not with an army, but on his own, and he's going to look around and see what's going on in the world. So instead of battling with the world, instead of conquering, he's going to be carousing. He's going to go in and be impacted by the world instead of having an impact on it. You know, as believers, we're called to be thermometers, not thermostats. I mean, thermostats, not thermometers. What does a thermometer do? It just tells you the heat of everything around you. It just reflects what's going on around you. But as believers, we're called to be uh, thermostats to change the temperature around us, amen, by being salt and light. So this camp was filled, no doubt, because they worshiped false gods, was filled with idolatry and immorality. They served the gods of sex and immorality, behavior and an environment that should have repulsed this man of God. He should have walked in and seeing this for the first time, turned his eyes away and thought, what in the world is going on here? This is so contrary to the Lord and his word. You know, when we cease to be repulsed by sin, we're in trouble. Amen? If you look at sin and you're okay with it, if you're trying to make excuses for it, when you cease to be repulsed by it, you're in trouble. Instead of being repulsed, Samson was enticed. When we put ourselves in such ungodly environments, our flesh will always be enticed. We must learn, like Joseph, to flee youthful lust. We don't want to become desensitized to sin. If we see it enough times, it becomes no big deal. We must learn, like Joseph, to run away. Samson's flesh was aroused as he walks through the camp. His curiosity is piqued. His flesh is wanting to be fed. He seeks to feed his fleshly desires. Now watch what happens. He says, and he saw a woman. Now no doubt he saw a lot of women, but he saw one woman that really got his attention. Now do you think when he saw this woman, it was her sparkling personality that got his attention? Was it her, her Christ-like uh, you know, attitude? Was it her humility before the creator of the universe? Or was it something that has enticed his flesh as soon as he saw this woman? Again, this defines him. He went down and saw a woman that is a capsule of Samson's life. It's been said that he was a he-man who was she-weak. Amen? And no doubt he saw many women, but it was this one particular woman that caught his eye, and now his curiosity is piqued, and his flesh is wanting to be fed. Samson was hanging out where he shouldn't have been. His flesh was aroused and was now leading the way. Now he's not walking in the power of the Holy Spirit. He's being led by his flesh. He's telling the Holy Spirit to be quiet. He's pushing the Holy Spirit back, and he's walking in his flesh. He's being moved by lust. He said, he saw a woman of, in Timnah, a daughter of the Philistines. Now the Philistines are the enemy. The Philistines, again, were to be conquered by Samson and the army that served alongside him. And instead of conquering, again, he is carousing. The very people God had called Samson to destroy and deliver them from, a pagan, immoral, and idolatrous people, and Samson doesn't care. 
By the way, if you're dating somebody and you have to build a case for their salvation, they're not saved. Can I get an amen to that? How people say, oh, I met this guy. Well, how, where's he at with Jesus? Because you know that's what I'm going to ask first every time. Where are they at with Jesus? Well, uh, you know, if you say, well, uh, I already know we're in trouble. Amen. We shouldn't have to prop him up. We shouldn't have to promote him. We shouldn't have to, oh, when he was seven, he got saved at a VBS. He's 50 now. How's he doing now? And too often what happens, we so focus, and the sad part is that here he is going out to meet this woman of the Philistines. They worship pagan idols. They've, they've, they've oppressed his people for 40 years. They've been in bondage to these godless idolaters, and instead of conquering them, he wants one of these women for his own. Verse 2, so he went up and told his father and mother, saying, I have seen a woman in Timnah of the daughters of the Philistines. Now, therefore, get her for me as a wife. Now, what's amazing is these are Samson's first words in the Bible. We waited 40 years for this. 40 years in bondage, and this is what we get? This is the first sentence out of his mouth? It's not restoring worship of the true and living God. It's not getting the eyes back on the living, breathing word of God. What is it instead? I found me a pagan, idolatrous woman. Mom and dad, go get her for me. I want to marry her. What a disaster. Amen? Samson, following the Again, very first recorded words, man whose calling was announced to his parents by Jesus himself. Again, the Lord's blessing was upon him. He was set apart to God. The Holy Spirit moving upon him. What great profound words are they? Woman, get her for me. There it is. Felt like he's a caveman. He ought to have a club in his hand. Woman, get her for me. That's what I want. We don't see him talking about the Lord. If anybody should be, it was him. He was moved by the lust of the flesh not the leading of the Holy Spirit. Again, there was nothing about this woman that could appeal to his, him spiritually. It had to be all physical. Again, it's not agape love, it's eros lust that he's experiencing. He sees a woman that causes him to lust in his heart and he wants to, to, to have his parents go again and get her as his wife. We should always ask ourselves when we're thinking about something, am I being moved by my flesh or led by the Holy Spirit? Who's in control right now as I'm making this decision? As I'm contemplating dating this woman or this man, or I'm contemplating doing this in my life or going to this place or taking, am I being led by the Holy Spirit right now or am I walking in the flesh? Samson's moved by the lust of the flesh, not the leading of the Holy Spirit. Do we see him praying right here? Does he get on his knees? Oh Lord, is this the woman you have for me? No, would have been real quick. <laughs> Amen. It wouldn't have taken long. Almighty God appeared to his parents. We see no prayer or seeking of any godly counsel. And while parents were the ones who made arrangements for marriage in those days, he doesn't seek the counsel of his parents. He just tells them, go get her for me. I want her. Driven by the fever pitch of lust simply demands that they go and get him what he wants, not what the Lord wills. None of this would have happened had he not been hanging out in enemy territory. You know what? You're probably not going to have a one-night stand if you're not hanging out in a bar. Can I get an amen to that? You're probably not going to fall into some of the sin that takes place in your life if you're not hanging out in the places where that stuff is condoned and encouraged. Amen? 
And so he goes out into the world. He's hanging out with a bunch of sexually immoral people with their pagan gods. Part of their, uh, some of their rituals were, uh, they had temple prostitutes. And he's walking into that environment and now his lust has been triggered. And this is the thing that is driving this man who's supposed to be leading God's people spiritually. And instead, he's chasing after the things of the world and making demands of his parents. He wandering in enemy territory leads to temptation. We'll see more of that in a moment. So point number one there, again, of compromise, the enemy of calling, being led by the flesh, not by the spirit. We're in a daily battle between the spirit and the flesh every single day. Point number two, walking in direct disobedience to the word of God. So he goes to his parents and says, hey, dad, uh, mom, I want you to go get me the pagan princess down there down there in the Philistine land and uh, Timnah, go talk to her parents and let's, let's make this happen. I need you to arrange this for me. Again, he hasn't spoken a word to her. So again, it's not the sparkling conversation. He's being driven by his flesh and nothing else. And now look what his parents say. Finally, he's gonna get some godly counsel. Then his father, his father and mother said to him, is there no woman among our daughters of your brethren or among all the people that you must go and get a wife from the uncircumcised Philistines? Go, Dad. Okay, that's good. Dad says, Do, aren't, aren't there any godly women amongst our people? Isn't there somebody you can meet that honors the Lord, that has a relationship with the true and living God? Why are you going down amongst the uncircumcised Philistines? Circumcision was a sign of the covenant between the children of Israel and Almighty God. You remember when David fought uh, Goliath, the Philistine, he said, who is this uncircumcised Philistine that comes against my God? They had no vow to God. They had no relationship with God. Why would you go and marry into, link yourself to somebody who has nothing to do with the true and living God? But when his parents do speak and give him godly counsel, he doesn't want to hear it. And have you ever noticed when you're whipped up in your flesh that you really don't want to hear any godly counsel? I have, I've had friends in my life who, they kind of disappear for a while, and I know something's up, because they know if we spend time together, I'm going to ask them about their walk, and the same might be true for you. And here's what happens, sadly, is that, again, when our flesh is whipped up and wants what it wants, we don't care about the consequences. I'm going to do what I want to do, and I don't care what happens, and then when it happens, you care that it happened, Amen. And there's that mentality that takes place, and the enemy's a liar, and he'll try to get you to do this, you know, and, and regardless of the consequences, let him come. But Samson wanted was in direct disobedience to the word of God. Deuteronomy was written before this, right? You read through the Bible, Deuteronomy's earlier. Deuteronomy 7, nor shall you make marriages with them. You shall not give your daughter to their, to their son, nor take their daughter for your son, for they will be torn... They will turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods. We saw that with Solomon. So the anger of the Lord will be aroused against you and destroy you suddenly. So there, here's a, a word from the Lord that is very direct, very blunt, very clear. If you marry in with, the, with the, those of the uncircumcised, those of the false gods of this world, and you give your sons to them, destruction will come upon you suddenly. His words get her for me. She pleases me well. What he's saying is she's a hottie and I want her. That's what it is. He doesn't care. 
There's nothing to do with her, uh, who she is as a person. Samson didn't want what was right, but he wanted what pleased his flesh. The flesh is ruling his life. He is not concerned with what God wanted, but what he wanted. One of the things that is frustrating when we counsel people sometimes, and we all counsel people from time to time, and I counsel people a lot, and I'll look them in the eye and say, this is what the Bible says, this is what the Lord commands, you don't have biblical grounds for divorce, you need to work on your marriage. I don't care, I'm gonna do what I want. Okay, the Bible says the way of the transgressor is hard, amen? He's not a no-fun bummer God trying to keep us from fun, he's a loving heavenly father who wants to keep us from harm. He disregards God's word and godly counsel and demands what his flesh wants, and sadly it is still, still so prevalent today. Bound by romantic feelings, many will disregard God's word and godly counsel and demand what their flesh wants. We are not to be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. I don't care how handsome he is or how pretty she is. What God has for you is the beauty that goes far beyond outward appearance. Amen? Don't just look for one who's taken the name Christian, but look for one who loves the Lord as much or more than you do. So how does mother and father respond? What are they going to say? They tell him, they exhort him that he is to wait. But Samson says, get her for me. She pleases me well. Verse four, but his father and mother did not know that it was of the Lord. Whoa, whoa, wait a minute. Didn't you just spend the last 20 minutes telling us how outside of God's will he was? And now it says it's of the Lord. See, God will even take our sinful behavior to bring about his perfect will but the difference is the consequences for Samson are still going to remain. See, God will, God will do, get his will done with us or without us. And God is even going to use his hardened heart to bring about his will with destroying the Philistines. And we're going to see that later on. Some of that begin later on in this chapter. And again, this was going to be done in spite of Samson's sinful behavior, not because he's walking in faith obedience to the Lord. God's will will be accomplished again with us or without us, and the end does not justify the means. I've had people say, well, yeah, I know she's not saved, but my, my brother got saved an unsaved girl, and you know, eight years later, she got saved, so see, it can work out. You know what? Disobedience, you know, the end result does not justify the means. Amen? We want to obey God. And the, the end, again, does not justify the means. God would use Samson to bring about his purposes, not because he was faithful, but in spite of his sinful behavior. Do you want to be used by God because you're being faithful? Or do you want God to use your circumstances in spite of the fact that you've been unfaithful? We want to be used by the Lord because we're faithful. Samson deals with the consequences of sin and rebellion while missing out on the blessings of faithfulness. The Lord, again, work through me, please, Lord, not in spite of me. Compromise the enemy of calling first, we saw being led by the flesh, not by the spirit, and now walking in direct disobedience to the word of God. There's no question here. It's been told clearly, you're not to marry unbelievers. You're not to be inter intermarrying with the pagans. You're not to do it. And he's going to do it anyway. And this is the spiritual leader of Israel. This tells you how bad of a, of a place they are in spiritually. Sometimes I will see things online of so-called pastors defending sinful behavior. And I think this, if this is pastors in our country, that says a lot about how far away we've gotten from the Lord. Amen. Now, finally, taking his vow of separation lightly. Now, watch what happens. So he's warned by his parents. He tells them, I don't care. I want it anyway. Go get her for me. 
And again, his father and mother said, you know, seek occasion to move on the Philistines, again, for their, for their dominion over Israel. God's going to use his unbelief even in a godly way. It says, so Samson went down to Timnah with his father and mother, and he came to the what? The what? The vineyards. So he's headed down to go get a Philistine wife from among the people he should be conquering, not marrying. And he takes a shortcut through a vineyard. And what this shows you is when you have one area of compromise in your life, it's a lot easier for a bunch of more areas to compromise in your life. Amen? Because the Nazarite, it's three things, bro, not 3,003. No vineyards. He takes a shortcut through a vineyard. It's called rebellion. Amen? No wine, no grapes, no raisins. One of the last places Samson should be walking is through a vineyard. And again, once we accept compromise, it'll spread throughout our lives. You ever notice that the hardest time to commit a sin is the first time, and then every time after it, it becomes easier? You ever notice how that's how the enemy does? He desensitizes us. He saw a woman, lust is you know, pouring through his veins, and he's walking through a Philistine vineyard to get her. He's, dis he's ignoring the vow with God to go make a vow to an ungodly woman. He's disobeying his vow with Almighty God to go make a vow with an uh, ungodly woman. Now, watch what happens. I find this interesting. He's in the vineyards of Timnah. Now, to his surprise, a young lion came roaring against him. Now, it's not a young goat, it's not a young bear, it's a young lion. He is in a place outside of God's will, walking in open compromise and disobeying the clear commands of God. And who shows up but a lion? And the Bible tells us that Satan is a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And when does he pounce on you the most? When you've made the conscious decision to walk in open disobedience to Almighty God. Amen? Such a clear picture here. You're outside of God's will. You're on your way to get yourself a Philistine wife. You're walking through the vineyard. You're, you're ignoring the vow you've made before the Lord, and the enemy shows up right on time. And that's exactly what he does in our lives as well. Again, he's a roaring lion seeking whom he made to devour. So heading down toward Timnah, Samson seems to make a detour without his parents through the vineyards, walking in the midst of sinful temptation by choice. And again, when we are complacent in our walk, the enemy is right there ready to pounce. So Samson, out of God's will, off track, without accountability, the enemy pounces. Now watch the grace of God here. Look what it says. Verse six, and the spirit of the Lord came upon him and he tore the lion apart. Now, the Bible tells us that with temptation, God makes a way of escape. And this is totally the grace of God here because he's headed to the wrong place to do the wrong thing. He's, the enemy attacks and God still gives him the strength to defeat the enemy in the moment. And that should be a word of encouragement for all of us that when we are tempted, God does indeed make a way of escape. Amen? Sometimes, even if we've taken a couple steps down that road, we've already kind of entered in, we've, we've, we've seared over our conscience for a moment, and we're headed in that direction, and God is still gracious enough, because he loves us, to bring a way of escape. This is a picture of God's grace. The Bible tells us in 1 Corinthians 10, no temptation has overtaken you except such as is common to man, but 
God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with temptation uh, will make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. Gives him a way of escape in the midst of great temptation. And the key to having a victory over Satan in the midst of temptation is to take the way of escape. I think too often we ignore the way of escape. Don't you see the way of escape when it comes, besides me, anybody? You're tempted to do something and all of a sudden, here's the way of escape. Someone will interrupt before you say the thing you shouldn't say. The phone will ring. Somebody will, you know, something will happen. They'll interrupt us in the midst of it. And praise the Lord, in these circumstances, he delivers him. Powered by the spirit at his baptism, Jesus went straight out into the desert and he overcame temptation, not by might nor by power, by my spirit, says the Lord. How did he defeat Satan? With the word of God and the spirit of God, amen? How do you want to have victory over Satan? With the spirit of God and the word of God. If we know what the word of God says, we will desire to walk in obedience and we can only walk in obedience to the word of God when we walk empowered by the spirit of God. So he tears up this lion and it says he had nothing in his hand, but he did not tell his father and mother what he had done. Now, why didn't he tell his parents? Why not? Let me tell you why not. Then it said, so where did this happen? In the vineyard. In the what? In the vineyard. I've told this story before. When I turned 16, my dad had made a deal with me that however much money I saved, he would match it for a car. And before my 16th birthday, I got a, car, a Camaro Z28 that had way too much power for a 16-year-old young man. And my dad let me drive. I got my license on my 16th birthday, and then I went and picked up all my buddies. And my dad told me, do not go down to the boardwalk, because they drag race down at the boardwalk, because it was during the winter time before the boardwalk was open. And so my buddies get in the car. Where do they want to go? The boardwalk. So we go down near the boardwalk. And to fast forward the story, about two hours later, my car is upside down on top of another car after I rolled it. And then I had to go call my dad and tell him to come pick me up. And he said, I'll come get you, son. You okay? Where are you? I'm in the vineyard. I mean, I'm at the boardwalk. <laughs> so here it is. He's in the vineyard. So you know what that tells me? It tells me that Samson knows what he's doing is wrong. Amen? When you have to hide your behavior, you're hiding it because you know it's wrong. He doesn't want to tell his parents where he was or what he had done because he did not want to disappoint them. He did not want to have to confess his sin. Now, not, not, watch what it says in verse 7. Then he went down and talked with the woman, and she pleased Samson well. Again, what could possibly have pleased him about a pagan, idolatrous, godless woman who worshiped false gods? How in the world could this please him? Only possible if he's looking at her from a physical perspective, again, spiritually dead, idol worshiper, no longer being led by the spirit, but just being led by his flesh. I know nobody here was ever attracted to somebody who was really attractive of the opposite sex who wasn't saved and you pursued him anyway. I'm sure nobody here's ever done that, right? But sadly, even if we have... It is so contrary to the word of God. Amen? Verse 8. After some time, when he returned to get or returned to see the carcass of the lion. This guy is not learning. 
So what happens is he goes down, he talks to her, he's enticed by her, he goes back, he's going back down to see her, and he decides to take another shortcut through the same vineyard where last time, because of his disobedience, he was attacked by a lion. But this is such a guy thing, because no doubt in his mind, he's like, I'm gonna go check out that lion I tore up. Let's go check that thing out. Let's go see what pieces remain after I took care of it. Can't you just see the pride in Samson? By the way, do you know in the Bible, nowhere does it say that Samson's yoked? Nowhere. It says he's strong. And I have an idea he wasn't yoked. Because whenever he was strong, they would always say, what's your secret to your strength? If he was yoked, they'd say, what's your workout plan, bro? Because you're yoked. But they're always like, what? wouldn't it be amazing if he looks like Pee Wee Herman or something? Because nowhere in the Bible does it say he's yoked. It just says he's strong. His strength comes from the Lord. So he turned aside to look at the carcass of the lion, to check out the remains of his victory, something that guys do. Now watch this. It says there, he went down and, and talked to him, and it says, he turned aside to see the carcass, and behold, a swarm of bees and honey were in the carcass of the lion. So the dead lion is there, and within its carcass, these bees have, have gathered, and now there's honey within the carcass of a lion. Now, I got to tell you, that's not that attractive to me. I'm thinking honey, I like honey, but in a dead animal, not so much. By the way, what's another one of the vows? Don't touch any dead things. So you're walking through a vineyard on your way to go see a woman you shouldn't marry, walking in a place you shouldn't be, and you're going back to check out the lion that you killed because you were in a place you shouldn't have been before, and now you're looking at a dead animal in front of you, and watch what he does. Verse 9, he took some of it in his hands and went along eating. So now he has broken the vow of not being in the vineyard, And now he's broken the vow of touching no dead thing. And we know from future chapters, I'm pretty sure you all know what happens with the hair later on. Can I get an amen to that? So he's going to break all three of them. Three vows, he's going to break them all. Violating his Nazarite vow to touch a dead body. And now people have wondered, I've had people ask me about this so many times. What is this a picture of honey in a dead lion? You know, the Bible tells us that sin is pleasurable for a season, but in the end, it leads to death. See, sin looks sweet outwardly, and when you touch it and you take of it, it might be sweet for a moment, but in the end, it defiles you, amen? And so he's going to touch something that's sweet to the touch initially, but it's defiling before it's over. And that's to me what is a clear picture of honey inside of this dead animal. Again, his physical eyes, hey, she's a honey. She looks good. In the end, it produces death. Notice again what it says. And when he came to his father and mother, he gave some to them and they also ate, but he did not tell them where he got it, where he'd taken the honey out of the carcass of a lion. Why doesn't he tell them? Not supposed to be in the vineyard, not supposed to be touching dead stuff. See, he knows he's walking in open compromise and there may be a part of Samson because he is a man who is seen as a judge of all Israel. Because he is a man that people view as a man of authority and position that no one would dare question the choices that he's making. And guys, this can happen in ministry where you get people in positions of authority and all of a sudden they think they're above it. And that's why you do see people fall in ministry more often than it should be, amen? 
Because they get to the point where they cease to be humble, broken, and desperate. And when you cease to be humble, broken, and desperate, you cease to be usable for the kingdom of God. As soon as you think you're something, you're really nothing that God can use. Amen? And here's Samson. He thinks he's above it. You know, I'm not supposed to touch it, but I'm going to do it. I'm not supposed to be a vineyard, but I'm going there anyway. I'm not supposed to marry a Philistine woman, but I don't care. I'm going to do what I want and let the consequences come as they may. Guys, it's about to get worse. Verse 10. So his father went down to the woman, and Samson gave a feast there, for young men used to do so. You thought bachelor parties were new? So this word feast here actually is drinking party in the original language. So the guy who walked through the vineyard and touched the dead animals is now having a drunken bachelor party to celebrate the fact that he is going to marry a pagan woman. How far away has Samson gotten from the Lord? He is so far away. And it is so tragic. And in his mind, no doubt, he thinks he's going to get away with it. He is God's appointed deliverer. He's called to destroy the very same Philistines he's now having a drunken party with. See, guys, people will use this about Jesus. They'll say, well, Jesus, you know, he sat with the, the wine bibbers and, you know, he's, he had dinner with the tax collectors. And yes, he did, but he didn't get drunk with the wine bibbers and he didn't treat, cheat people out of their money with the tax collectors. He ministered to them. Amen? And here they are, he's drinking with them when he should have been ministering to them, or in this case, conquering them, because they were the enemy. He was called to destroy these very same Philistines, and now he's partying with them. Since progression, walking through a vineyard to now having a drunken uh, feast and party. Samson's compromise have led him so far away from his true calling. Verse 11, and it happened when they saw him, they, thought they bought 30 companions to be with him. Dude has no friends. And you know what? We shouldn't have friends in the world in that sense. Now, again, we minister to the world. As Christians, we don't go sit up on a mountaintop and contemplate our navel till Jesus comes back. We're called to minister to the world, but have no fellowship with it. As you guys have heard me say, the boat's in the water. We don't want the water in the boat. Amen? But we do want to minister to the world, but we are not friends of the world. We're friends of God. Amen? And we minister to the world. So Samson they have to pay off these guys. And by the way, it's probably not that hard to pay off guys to come to a drunken party. Hey, dude, we got, we got to load some people up. This guy's getting married, man. He needs some people to come to his drunken party. He went, dude, I mean, probably had to turn people away. Probably got 30 really quick. So now these are his friends, a bunch of uncircumcised Philistines who worship false gods, and they're all partying together. And have you ever noticed when you choose to walk in sinful disobedience to God that the world is quick to egg you on? The world is quick to encourage you to keep doing it. I have coworkers, not as so much today because we're on, we're on uh, Zoom a lot, but I used to work in an office where guys would talk about cheating on their wives openly in the lunchroom. Oh, yeah, I met this woman. I'm hooking up with her. And these guys would be, oh, dude, go for it, bro. Man, right on. They're high-fiving each other, right? Celebrating their sinful behavior. And then they would see me at the next table. I'm like, I'm going to tell. I will tell. I know where you live. I'm driving to your house. I will tell. And they're just in full panic mode from that point forward. I will tell on you. But the point I'm making is that when we choose to sin, the ones who love you enough 
to come and, and you know, stab you in the front, right? The ones who come along to, to exhort you, those are your real friends. The ones who encourage you to continue down that path, those are the ones you need to steer clear of. So then Samson said to them, let me pose a riddle to you. So they're having their drunken bachelor party. And even back then, often the bachelor, the man who's about to be married, the betrothed husband, would give gifts to his, you know, his people that come to his party, the people in his uh, wedding party. And so he poses a riddle, says, if you can correctly solve and explain it to me within seven days of the feast, then I will give you 30 linen garments and 30 changes of clothing. But if you cannot explain it to me, then you shall give me 30 garden limit, uh, uh, garments, linen garments and 30 changes of clothing. And they said to him, pose your riddle that we may hear it. Now, he's going to give them a riddle. This is a big deal because most people only had one set of clothes, maybe two. So it's an entire wardrobe at stake. Now watch what happens. So he said to them, out of the eater came something to eat, and out of the strong came something sweet. What's he talking about? The lion. Now, is there any way in the world anybody would ever be able to guess that? Oh, dude, I know. You got honey out of a lion. Nobody's ever going to say that. But here's the scary part. He is turning his rebellious and sinful behavior into a joke. Something he should be ashamed of. Something he should be repenting over. He's using it as a joke to get over on all the guys in his wedding party to be able to, you know, to steal clothes from them. And you know what? As believers, we should never joke about our sin. Amen? We should be grieved by it. We shouldn't celebrate it. Uh, I'm praise God we have overcomers here. I, I'd had to, with family members, sometimes go to AA meetings before, and it was nauseating to me because people would get up and brag about when they used to drink. I'm thinking, how does this help with the whole process of quitting? And they'd get up there, oh man, I was a scotch guy and I used to drink. And they talk about it like those were the good old days when I used to puke in the gutter. And here's the sad part is as believers sometimes, you know, people talk about the way they used to live before they knew Christ. Guys, praise God that we've been delivered from that. We should not rejoice in that. We should be thankful that we're forgiven for that. Amen? And sadly, Samson's reveling in it, talking about it. He's going to use it to get over on the guy's we're supposed to be in his wedding party. It's bad enough to disobey God, but when you make a joke out of it, you've sunk to a new low in spiritual insensitivity. This is a riddle. It's all but impossible to solve. Let's finish up. But it came to pass on the seventh day that they said to Samson's wife, so here's how it worked. They had a betrothal period and then they had a seven-day feast. And so she's already referred to as his wife because they have entered into that time. But I want to say this, the consummation of the marriage doesn't happen until the end of the seventh day. And that's going to play into this in just a moment. And so the best men, all these men in his wedding party come along and they're like, they're going to talk to her because they have no idea. And they're not about to get 30 things of clothing and give it to him that some of them would have to take their clothes off their back. So watch what happens. So he says to her, came to pass, it says, entice your husband that he may explain this riddle to us or else we will burn you in your father's house with fire. Now, these are the kind of guys you want in your wedding party, right? So either you entice him to tell us or we're going to burn your house down, you and your father with it. Now, 
The sad part is, we're going to see how she responds to this, but again, it's God's grace. So a woman he shouldn't be marrying, being threatened by men he should not have, have never met, over a riddle he should have never posed, in light of sinful actions he should have never been a part of. And all of this, we're just getting further and further and further away, and Samson's consequences for compromise were just beginning. Now watch what happens. So it says there, your father's house, have you invited us in in order to take what is ours? Is that not so? Then Samson's wife wept on him and said, you only hate me. You do not love me. Boy, that's a tactic that's been around all this time. <laughs> Guys are liars. People are liars. If you love me, you would. If anybody says, if you love me, you would sin, run from that person and bring them down here to Joshua and I, and we'll talk to them in Jesus' name. <laughs> Amen? If you love me, you would sin for me. That's not someone who loves you. Can I get an amen to that? That's it. I mean, not, that, the lips of an adulterous woman drip with honey, but the path to her house leads to hell, the Bible says. Amen? And so here it is that, well, if you love me, you would tell me. Now, remember, this is consummation day. I'm, not try, I'm trying to have some tact here. But he had seen her, and he was already, like, on fire for this woman. And now it's about time. We're at the end of the wedding, and he's going to be physically intimate with her for the first time. And she's like, if you love me, you would tell me. So what does he do? You've posed a riddle for the sons of my people, but you've not explained it to me. Now, first, he doesn't want anything part of it. Look at this. He said to her, look, I'm not explained to my father and my mother, so why would I explain it to you? This wedding's off to a great start. Yeah. <laughs> Already he's telling her, why would I tell you anything? Why would I even talk to you? I don't want anything to do with you. So this woman's enticing him. She's trying to get him. So no one says, verse 17, now she wept on him in the seven days while the feast lasted. It happened on the seventh day, again, consummation's coming, that he told her because she uh, pestered him so much that then she explained the riddle to the sons of her people. Whose side is she on? She's not on the side of her husband. She's on the side of all the guys she grew up with, all the other pagans. He's the odd one in the group. And she runs to their side instead of standing with him. And again, if you marry an unbeliever, don't be surprised when the unbeliever sides with the world instead of siding with the Lord. Amen? They don't know the Lord. So Samson's main weakness, again, is women. And she explained the riddle to the sons of her people and notice. Again, where her loyalties lie. A match made in heaven, I don't think so. Each only focus on what was best for themselves. This is Aaron on both sides. She sees him as somebody that she can get something from, and he sees her as somebody he wants to take something from, and each of them is thinking only of themselves, and is it any wonder that it's going to be a disaster? Let's finish up. Then it says there in verse 18, So the men of the city said to him on the seventh day, before the sun went down, what is sweeter than honey and what is stronger than a lion? And he knows immediately his wife told. His wife has abandoned him. They solved the riddle and Samson knew he'd been betrayed. And note the quick change in Sam, Samuel's feelings. This is how Aaron love lasts, right? It's been a week. Look what it says. If you had, plowed, if you had not plowed with my heifer, you would have not solved my riddle. 
A week before, gotta have her, gotta have her, gotta have her, gotta have her. Mom and dad, go get her, go get her, go get her. Dad, go get her, go get her. Dad, I want to be betrothed to her. You got to make her my wife. I want her to be my wife. I want her to be my wife. Seven days later, cow. (laughs) This is what happens when you're moving and operating in the flesh instead of walking in the fullness of the Holy Spirit. Amen? When you have error in love, it's lust, and you just want what you want, and as soon as you feel like they've betrayed you, you you don't want them anymore. After seven days of a drinking party being manipulated and betrayed, he refers to her as a cow. By the way, take your time and get to know somebody before uh, you get married, amen? Get to know them. Spend time with them. By the way, eight years is too long, Amen? I'll meet people like, yeah, we've been engaged for eight years. Uh, dude, you need to either marry that girl or let her go. Amen? Let her marry somebody else who's willing to marry her. Again, Joshua and I are ready to help you out with that. Verse 19. Then the Spirit of the Lord came upon him mightily. Now, isn't it amazing? In the midst of all his sinful behavior, but see, the Spirit of the Lord is going to come upon him. Remember earlier, it said to bring about God's will. Now, watch what happens. The Spirit of the Lord came upon him. He went down to Ashkelon and killed 30 of their men, took their apparel, and gave the changes of clothing to those who had explained the riddle. So his anger was aroused, and he went back to his father's house. So because they guessed the riddle, 30 other guys who happened to also be Philistines got killed. Now notice, every time you see Samson being strong, it says what it says at the beginning of verse 19, then the spirit of the Lord came upon him mightily. See, his strength was not in his hair, though that was an example of his Nazarite vow. The strength was in the empowering work of the Holy Spirit. And the same is true for us. The strength is not in our gifting or our talent or anything else. Anything that we can do for the Lord and for his glory, the strength comes from the empowering work of the Holy Spirit. Last verse, and Samson's wife was given to his companion who had been his best man. Boy, this has been a great... Really all worked out, didn't it? Now, we're not going into the next chapter, but you're going to find out that he has second thoughts and goes back to get her and finds out she married his best man who had been given alcohol to be his best man. And so, sadly, when we go outside of God's will, when we, when we walk according to the flesh, we shouldn't be surprised when the end results are a disaster. See, the way the transgressor is hard and what God has for us is so much greater the Spirit of the Lord came upon him to, do, to help him do God's will. But in the end, again, God actually protected him from this woman in a sense. But again, he didn't know. So here, let me close with this to say this. We see God's grace even in the midst of his rebellion, allowing circumstances to get him back on track, to deliver him from a marriage to a Philistine woman. He could have avoided all this heartache if he had just obeyed God to begin with. Guys, it's so much easier and so much more fruitful to do things God's way instead of our own, to walk in the power of the Holy Spirit instead of sinful desires of the flesh. Like Samson, each one of us has a divine calling upon our lives. Like Samson, with godly calling, we've been gifted and empowered by God to serve him faithfully. Like Samson, we have free will and we can choose to faithfully obey God's word, to die to our fleshly desires and wants, to resist the temptations of the enemy, to take the way of escape, to heed godly counsel, to respond quickly to the Holy Spirit's conviction when we've blown it and repent, 
or we can choose to give into temptation, to walk according to the flesh, to take God's word and God's commands and God's calling upon our lives lightly, to compromise, to render God's calling upon our lives ineffective and fruitless. See, if the enemy cannot disqualify you, he will do everything he can to distract you. In Samson's case, he was distracted by a woman. And it took him away from God's calling upon his life. Whether it's the wine, the women, the money, or the glory, we need to be careful. We need to be desperate and humble and broken, lest we fall into the trap that we allow something to tempt us, to draw us away, to distract us from God's calling, and heaven forbid, to disqualify us from the ministry that God has called us to serve in. Amen? So in closing, compromise the enemy of calling, missing out on God's highest, being led by the flesh, not by the spirit, walking in direct disobedience to the word of God, and taking our vow of separation from the world too lightly. Lord, we thank you, we praise you, we love you. You are indeed a great and an awesome God. Lord, I just pray for all of us here that, Lord, we would not be satisfied with saved souls and wasted lives, that if we are living lives of compromise, that we would repent, surrender our lives fully to you. And, Lord, I pray that you would stir up the gifts you've given us to use us for your kingdom and for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray, and all God's people said...